Colossians 1, starting at verse 9. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord in all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your majestic word, and we thank you for the grace we could just sing and herald to one another and worship you for. Lord, truly we are thankful for the abundance of grace that you have given us. And I just pray that as we reflect on this truth from your word again, that you would humble us, that you would help us to look expectantly to you, and that we would go away encouraged and seeking your face. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning's text is going to be verse 13. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. So if you were living in the Ukraine right now, you would know what it is to have a lot of hurt, hostility, mistrust. You think of what wars does and the pain of war, bloodshed. And as we see in this text here, we see another two-kingdom battle that is taking place. We're in either one or the other. And notice that the Apostle Paul is taking us right into the depths of this spiritual warfare between the kingdom of darkness, as he calls it. Notice he doesn't even give us the, the leader at this point. And on the other side, he talks about the kingdom of his dear son. And there the name is... Christ, or the position, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, you and I are not immune from this battle. We know everything about it. We are involved in this battle. We're either dying under the power of darkness, or we are living under the kingdom of the dear Son of the Father. And as you think about this text, the Apostle wants us Christians to meditate on where we were. And so it's really important to remember where we came from, to remember the, the, the depth from which God took us. And so first of all, notice the power. It says the power of darkness. The idea there of power has the idea of a tenacious grip that was upon us, upon the subjects of this kingdom. It describes a tyranny that we were sold under, captives to sin. Ephesians, uh, in Ephesians, Paul talks about it similarly. In fact, Colossians and Ephesians are kind of like uh, twin letters that were most likely written together, commissioned at the same time. And Paul in that letter particularly talks about this battle and when he says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And we have to remember that, especially as we see even this Roe v. Wade thing going on, as we see government and all these things. The battle is a spiritual battle. And Paul says that, but against principalities, against powers, and against rulers of darkness. There's the same word of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. One of the names that the Jews 
would give Satan, the adversary, was darkness. That's what they would call him. This kingdom of darkness casts its ugly shadow on every aspect of this fallen world. This is why those who imagine that people have it in themselves to get better, if we really think we can get out of this kingdom and free others from this kingdom in and of ourselves, that human ingenuity can do it, have no clue about the nature of this darkness. And we need to remember that, don't we? It is completely a bondage. It is spiritual, and it manifests itself in three primary ways. First of all, it talks about sinful or manifests itself in sinful passions. The Apostle Paul, also writing to his uh, disciple, Titus, says this in chapter 3, verse 3, For we ourselves were sometime foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You see, if you're in this kingdom, if you're in its bondage, you love dark things. You love things that God hates, and you seek to do them because you think by them you'll get better. Where does this insatiable lust for power and attention come from? Why do we covet? Why do I want to have the job someone else has? their money or their looks or their friends or their house or their car. We can look so good on the outside, but the Bible teaches us that these wicked thoughts arise from within. And in somebody who's sold to captivity, sold in this darkness, they have no freedom from that. Enslaved in that, it's unchecked, it's unrelenting, and it feeds itself. I had to think of a rat trapped in a trap gnawing at its own leg and still wanting to free itself and at the end is just consuming himself. That's what darkness does. Sin consumes us. Miserable. The other one is error. Ephesians, again, Paul says this in chapter 4, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind having their understanding darkened. Not only does it give deeds of darkness, it clouds the mind. It's called the noetic effects of the fall, that the mind is also darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. It blurs and distorts truth, and that is why unbelievers will take all of God's truth that is manifest to them and distort it and twist it and darken it. Um, The ability to think itself is borrowed from God to reason and is used to reason against his very existence. Van Til would call this borrowed capital. The wonder of God's design and creation is spurned and worship is rendered instead to blind chance and evolution. Sexuality and identity in our culture very much is under attack and distorted and the design of the body is sidelined for how people feel about themselves. And there's no more purpose to body. It's just to whatever you think about yourselves. Ultimately, this culture and this darkness leads to nihilism. Nihilism, the belief that life is without objective meaning, purpose, or value. And that is why we have a culture and a world that is so longing for value and so longing for purpose, and they can't find it. And they make up all kinds of idols. And just remember, 
outside of Christ, this was you, this was me, chasing after the wind. Remember that. It's a recipe for hopelessness and despair. Every man is his own God, and at the same time, man cannot see the shackles that bind his own heart. And I think we see this darkness most vividly at the cross, um, in this rejection of the Son of God, the hatred for his holiness. How many people have thought or have said, surely I would never have betrayed Jesus? I don't know why Judas would do that. Or Peter, why would he deny him? I wouldn't have done that. I would not have cried out with the crowds, crucify him. I'm better than them. That's inhuman pride to think that way. And, and the Bible says that Gentiles and Jews conspired together in the greatest travesty of justice at the cross. Both were there to do a lawless thing, to condemn the righteous Son of God, which is why when Jesus would be betrayed... You know what he says? Luke twenty two fifty three. He says, This is your hour and the power of darkness. The identical words. This is your hour and the power of darkness. Because ultimately in that bondage, that's where it leads. To slay the Son of God. It also leads, thirdly, to misery and death. Turn with me, please, to Isaiah 8. This is the uh, chapter just before the famous Christmas passage where it talks about unto us a son is given. Isaiah 8, starting at verse 19. And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? To the law and the testimony, for if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. People don't seek the word because there's no light. And they shall pass through, hardly bestead, which means distressed and hungry. And it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves. You'd think if you're hungry, you would start looking for help. No, instead, look what they do. They fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward in defiance. And they shall look unto the earth And behold, trouble and darkness, dimness and anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be as it was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them hath the light shined. And we'll stop there. But you see the darkness, what it brings. It brings misery. It brings hatred of God. It brings despair. Look how it says in verse 22, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. Being in this power will lead you into further darkness. That's what it does. It is God's judgment on a sinful world. How do we understand tyrants like Hitler, Pol Pot, Stalin, 
people that would be driven to that kind of stuff. And even atheists have to borrow again from Christianity to, to get terms when they talk about these people. They'll, they'll even use, as atheists, professing atheists will use terms like, well, that's demonic, that's satanic, that is pure evil, that's hellish. And at the same time, they will say we are just evolved slime and really have no meaning, no purpose, and yet they know they need words to describe the horrors of concentration camps and, and that kind of murder. And yet with all of that, this power is so great when they use those terms. Still, they do not repent. Remember, that's who we were outside of Christ. We'd be the same. We're no better. Don't look at your neighbor as if you're You've achieved something they haven't achieved. We really are in misery outside of Christ. That is the power. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4 that it is a blinding power. It says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Blind people need a miracle to see, don't they? And they'll always otherwise be subject to somebody leading them and telling them where they are, what's happening, because the seeing can tell them. But the devil takes these blind people and continues to feed them lies to further delude them because they don't see the truth. This power is so strong that in 2 Timothy 2, it says that they are in the snare of the devil taken captive by him at his will, which is why we will never see in this world social programs, human wisdom, church attendance, religious programs, and scientific discoveries that will rescue anybody and take the key to undo the shackles that bind man in this dark dungeon. Try what you may, it will not happen. Our sinful nature clasped us to Adam's fall. And the shackles are so tight, and the more we sin, the tighter the shackles become, and our condemnation is greater. David would write, I was shapen in iniquity, and my sin did my mother conceive me. And, and just in case people think, well, original sin was just Adam, and I'm not as bad as Adam, the Apostle Paul will take this on in Romans 2. Look what he says. He says, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart, Treasurest thou up unto thyself wrath. You're storing it up, accumulating it as if you've got a pile of wrath that's building every day. As the defiance grows, so does God's wrath on you. That was us. And you remember in Isaiah 8 at the end, it says they shall be driven to darkness. I, I, I really think we need to reflect on what that means. Driven to darkness. They're already in darkness. And they're being driven like cattle into further darkness. Jude picks up that theme. So does Second Peter. You know how they describe what's coming? To whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Hell is not a concept. It's a reality. It is dark. It is lonely. It is eternal. 
It's terrifying. The darkest and the most miserable hell on earth that you have ever heard of, that you have seen in pictures maybe of the camps, that you've heard described from testimonies are but blips on the radar and cannot begin to describe what awaits those who are in the shackles of darkness. And so how is this power overcome? And it tells us in Colossians, back to our text, that Christ did this. But look peculiarly that Christ is first and foremost not in view yet, but the Father. Verse 12 says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet or fitting to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. It is the Father that began this. It is the Father that, that sought us out. It is his wise design and covenanting with his Son who would achieve this. The idea of this rescue plan has to draw our minds back, as undoubtedly it did for Paul, to the Exodus. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 6, please. Exodus chapter 6. Everything Israel went through would be a picture of what the sinner is in his bondage. And so in chapter 6, verse 6, it says, Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, this is when Moses has to go and tell Pharaoh to let them out. He says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the, under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and ye shall know that I am Jehovah, the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you unto the land concerning which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a heritage. I am the Lord. You see the words? Heritage, an inheritance, a land, a kingdom, everything of the Old Testament pictures what God does in Jesus Christ to give us an inheritance. And so when we were in these shackles, when we were bound for hell, God reaches down with his mighty hand and redeems us from the pit of destruction, from groping in the dark, in lawlessness, and he pulls us out. So again, in 2 Corinthians, which I quoted earlier, it says, For God, who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ is seen and loved, it is because the Father has opened our eyes to see the light of the gospel. It is the Father the first person of the Godhead who has done this. His love for sinners is magnificent. So many people want to say, oh, I love Jesus, and they kind of discard the Father and the Spirit almost as secondary to this. No, it is the Trinity, the triune God, but it begins in the counsel of the Almighty Father. Oh, that we would meditate on the deliverance that the Father chose in himself to give us. And that is why it says in the previous verse, giving thanks unto the Father. John Owen would write a book called On Communion with God. And in that book, he would talk about 
fellowshipping with each member of the Trinity. And so as we read in redemptive history more of God's work and we see more of the Father and the Son and the Spirit learn to commune with each member of the Godhead, dwell and meditate on what the Father has done and what the Spirit has done and what the Son has done. Notice in the text it says, who hath delivered us from the power. This is something that has taken place. This is who we are as believers. We're no longer in the shackles. They've been released. We've been taken out into a new kingdom. A foundational, positional change has happened for us. And so it says, translated into the kingdom of the Son of God's love, literal translation. A translocation, this word here is the idea of a people group that is moved from one place and situated in another country. A complete change of nationhood, of status, a deliverance. That's what we have. We have new passports. We carry a new banner. We have a new master. Yes, we still know the reality of this war. We still often stumble in the dense fog that may lay ahead of us. But the difference is the banner of Christ is over us. The armor of God is upon us and available to us, and we can put it on. That is why Paul says in Ephesians 6, when he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, he says, put on, therefore, the armor of God. It's available to us. And that is also why when the disciples ask Jesus, teach us to pray, he says, our Father who art in heaven, and then he goes on to say, deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. The Father is in charge of all things. We have nothing to fear because the Father is the supreme ruler of rulers. And Paul would write in Romans 6, he would say, Sin will not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. We live now in this kingdom by grace. The grace of God is the grace that allows us to fail and to know we have forgiveness. Oh, how I love that grace. I don't know how your week was, but there was things I did this week that I'm not proud of, things, attitudes, ideas that I need grace for. I'm so thankful that we serve a father who gave his son to apply redemption to me, to you, so that we can confess our sins and to know that in this kingdom we have grace, forgiveness. He's given us the freedom to fail, but he's also given us the power to fight. I know I can go into my tomorrow with that power, with that strength, that I can now fight and kill sin. I didn't have that before. When I was in shackles, couldn't lift a sword. I couldn't put on a breastplate. But now in Christ, we can do that. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So many people look at Christianity as if it's well, some boring religion. It's kind of a bondage. That's what they see it as. Oh, you're enslaved to your religion. It's full of burdensome restrictions. Oh, you have rules. Man, I can do what I want, people say. How wrong. How absolutely wrong that is. 
It is precisely with the Son that we don't live in oppression. It is precisely in Christ that we are not under a tyrant, but under a sweet heavenly Father and a Son who gave himself for us. There's nothing boring about that. There's nothing enslaving about that. That is freedom. And that is why Paul would say in Romans 14, 17, about this kingdom where we live, he says it is peaceable. It is a righteous reign. He says the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Joy in the Holy Ghost. In this kingdom, the law of God is loved instead of spurned. We want to obey God's law. Not always do we do it perfectly, but as John would write in 1 John 5, 1, he says his commandments are not grievous or burdensome. That's a mercy. It is a mercy to want to seek to obey God. Turn with me again to the Old Testament here, Isaiah 2. I always love this passage. It's one of my favorite passages. I think I say that about a lot of passages. Rhea pointed that out the other day. You said that about other verses. (laughs) Isaiah 2. Verse 1, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Here it is. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. The idea of the divine heavenly rule of God, right? It's the top. It's exalted above all the hills. So all the nations, all the other rulers and gods are nothing. God's kingdom rules. And all the nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Remember in the Psalms it says, Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who shall abide in his holy place? And now in Christ we can run and invite others up this mountain. And look what it says. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. When Jesus ascended and took upon himself the reign, the throne, it says he must reign until he has made all his enemies his footstool. As the gospel is going out, the nations are being called to obedience. And so the reign of Christ from heaven now has begun, and one day it will cover the earth, and we will see the nations that will flock to God Hallelujah. We will love the law of God. The law of God is a beautiful law. The psalmist would write, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation day and night. In this kingdom that we have been translated to, we are a cleansed people. It says in Revelation 7, 14, These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of Christ. We are a cleansed people. In this kingdom, we worship a new master. Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Being shackled, we'd never cry out. We would raise our fists. And now in his kingdom, we rejoice in his lordship. But oh, the war that rages on today against this kingdom. Oh, the assaults of the world against the kingdom of Christ. 
It's everywhere. It is pervasive in our culture, isn't it? How often the lies of this world, the the wickedness that we see the government concocting, the growing lawlessness that seems to have the upper hand, or the false teachings that abound in so many many churches. It seems like they're thriving. And then the question is, should we in this kingdom, in the kingdom of our dear son, of his dear son, should we be afraid? Are you afraid of what might happen? Are you fearful when you turn on the news and you hear what's coming? Are you afraid? Do not be afraid. Do not compromise. Do not cower. Do not lose heart. Take encouragement from that last part of Colossians 2, verse or 113, where it says, The kingdom of his dear son. Son of his love. That means that the Father's love on His Son is the kingdom we abide in. It means that the permanence of the Father's love for His Son abides on us. Think about this. In 2 Samuel, when David was promised an eternal kingdom, remember, God says, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish His kingdom there's his reign. And he shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's where this is all rooted in God's promise. And it's secured. And the bonds of this love are eternal bonds. They are the bonds that preceded creation, preceded the plan of God, preceded all things, or the execution of God's plan, sorry. And God says this concerning his son. He says, I declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Should we be afraid when the father says to his dearly beloved son, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the nation, the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession? Should we cower when the father says to his dearly beloved son, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron? Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Do not be afraid in the kingdom of this Christ. Be encouraged. Go out today being hopeful. Do not lose heart. Stand strong tomorrow. Stand strong in the next weeks and months. Things may get harder, but stand strong. The Father's bonds of love for His Son are inseparable. And so you can stand in those bonds. Carry his banner into your workplace. Carry it into the grocery store. To those you meet in the park when you go for a walk. Or on a hike maybe this next week or in the next weeks to come. Herald the name of Jesus and the lordship of his kingdom to your friends, to your neighbors, and to our officials and magistrates. Do not be afraid to mention God and God's law to our government. They are accountable to him. And you can go and boldly say that to them. God hath said. So be expectant. Be hopeful. Because you are a new person. You have been translated into this new kingdom. And we will know God's love every day in an ever-expanding degree. 
because this is the wish of King Jesus. Take with me a minute to go to John 17. If you think about these bonds of love, see what Jesus says with respect to these bonds of love. John 17, the high priestly prayer that Jesus would pray for his sheep before he would go to the cross. Verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world, the son of his love. Right, And that would be lots. He says, I want them to be here. But he goes on, and look what else he prays. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. What kind of knowledge is this? This is the knowledge between Son and Father, eternal knowledge. And these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that, here it is, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. That's staggering. The Father's love for the Son, as we are united to Christ, we partake of that love. And so being in this kingdom, the Father's love for Jesus Christ slowly and increasingly becomes part of our experience. Next sermon, I'm going to go into 2 Peter 1, verse 3 or 4, where it talks about being partakers of the divine nature. That verse almost brought church splits, but it all centers on this concept of partaking in the fellowship of God. We don't become God. That'd be heresy. But we partake of the bonds of covenant love. And so we are secure in that love translated into that kingdom. So what does life in the kingdom look like then? It means now eyes opened. We can walk in this world seeing things as they really are. The more we allow the flashlight of the word of God, thy word is a lamp unto my feet, to go before us, the more we will understand what is happening in this world. Park the Bible, and you start walking in dark paths. Bring the word of God to your mind and to your experience and to your thinking, and you will apply a light to your path, and you will know how to speak to friends and neighbors. And you will increasingly see the futility and the vanity that they are chasing after. Having a new passion as a kingdom Citizen of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, you will desire to behold God more because he is lovely to you and you love him. And so in this kingdom, citizens will invite other citizens to see more of Jesus because we love him. By the advancement of the gospel of this kingdom, we can upset the tyranny and the darkness and the sin as the gospel transforms other people and undoes their shackles so they can become citizens of the kingdom of light. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven, what can we do that they don't have? We're not nihilistic. We have purpose. We have joy. We have hope. We're going somewhere. 
And they can see that. And so the jealousy this brings hopefully will provoke them as it does to Israel in Romans 11 that they want to come as God takes hearts and changes them. By promoting God's law in society, we can show and bless our society with the beauty of God's righteous ways. Many of the blessings our nations have known are because the law of God was applied in rule. And so let us encourage the law of God in all questions of government and rule. It will bless society, and it will expose people to God's righteous ways. Because citizens of the kingdom of heaven know who has conquered, we will conquer. We will conquer, because he has conquered our hearts, and he is conquering. Now, maybe you're sitting here this morning, and you've never tasted anything of the citizenship of the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the son of the, the, the son of the father's love. Maybe you've never seen the shackles that are around you. You've come to church, but you're like Charles Wesley. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound, fast bound. The Apostle Paul would go to Rome, and before he went there, God says to this, this is why I have sent you to Rome, he says, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. That is the gospel commission. This morning, that gospel saves sinners and is calling you to repentance. It is calling you to look to Christ. And by looking to Christ by faith, the shackles come off because he has paid to deliver us. He has paid the price. He is the one that gives forgiveness of sins. And so he calls us in the gospel. He calls you, look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved. For I am God, and there is no other. Will you surrender yourself as a hell-bound captive as you are and cast yourself upon God? Maybe you're a Christian here. I hope you are. And you feel as if the dark clouds are thick upon you. Maybe you're here in agony of soul and you are doubting and you are sinking under the pressures around you. Know that the love of the Father for his Son is an unchanging love. It is an abiding love. And it's so it goes with you because his Spirit is with you. I want to close this morning with something that was written in 1563 as a ruler would commission two men, Zacharias Ursinus and Caspar Olivianus. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, 28-year-old Zacharias would write this that I am not my own, 
but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life. And he makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's the gospel. That's our hope. That's the kingdom we live in. That is the joy of the Christian. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that it breaks the strongest of men. It breaks the coldest of hearts and warms them up. And it turns sinners like myself to Christ. I pray that each one of us would know Jesus. I pray, Father, that if there's any soul here still in darkness, that you would break the shackles, that you would draw them to yourself, and that they would now evermore dwell in the light of the love that the Father has for the Son. In Jesus' name, amen.